Book One, Chapter Two, Part One of The Octopus by Frank Norris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. On the following morning, Harran Derrick was up and about by a little after six o'clock, and a quarter of an hour later had breakfast in the kitchen of the ranch house, preferring not to wait until the Chinese cook laid the table in the regular dining room. He scented a hard day's work ahead of him, and was anxious to be at it betimes. He was practically the manager of Los Muertos, and with the aid of his foreman and three division superintendents, carried forward nearly the entire direction of the ranch, occupying himself with the details of his father's plans, executing his orders, signing contracts, paying bills, and keeping the books. For the last three weeks little had been done. The crop, such as it was, had been harvested and sold, and there had been a general relaxation of activity for upwards of a month. Now, however, the fall was coming on. The dry season was about at its end. Any time after the twentieth of the month the first rains might be expected, softening the ground, putting it into condition for the plough. Two days before this, Harran had notified his superintendents on three and four to send in such grain as they had reserved for seed. On two, the wheat had not even shown itself above the ground, while on one, the home ranch, which was under his own immediate supervision, the seed had already been graded and selected. It was Harran's intention to commence bluestoning his seed that day, a delicate and important process which prevented rust and smut appearing in the crop when the wheat should come up. But furthermore, he wanted to find time to go to Guadalajara to meet the governor on the morning train. His day promised to be busy. But as Harran was finishing his last cup of coffee, Phelps, the foreman on the home ranch, who also looked after the storage barns where the seed was kept, presented himself, cap in hand, on the back porch by the kitchen door. "'I thought I'd speak to you about the seed from four, sir,' he said. That hadn't been brought in yet. Harran nodded. I'll see about it. You've got all the bluestone you want, have you, Phelps? And, without waiting for an answer, he added, Tell the stableman I shall want the team about nine o'clock to go to Guadalajara. Put them in the buggy, the bays, you understand. When the other had gone, Harran drank off the rest of his coffee, and, rising, passed through the dining room and across a stone-paved hallway with a glass roof into the office just beyond. The office was the nerve center of the entire ten thousand acres of Los Muertos, but its appearance and furnishings were not in the least suggestive of a farm. It was divided at about its middle by a wire railing, painted green and gold, and behind this railing were the high desks where the books were kept, the safe, the letter press and letter files, and Harran's typewriting machine. A great map of Los Muertos, with every watercourse, depression, and elevation, together with indications of the varying depths of the clays and loams in the soil, accurately plotted, hung against the wall between the windows, while near at hand by the safe was the telephone. But no doubt the most significant object in the office was the ticker. This was an innovation in the San Joaquin, an idea of shrewd, quick-witted young Annixter, which Harran and Magnus Derrick had been quick to adopt, and after them Broderson and Osterman, and many others of the wheat-growers in the county. 
the offices of the ranches were thus connected by wire with san francisco and through that city with minneapolis duluth chicago new york and at last and most important of all with liverpool fluctuations in the price of the world's crop during and after the harvest thrilled straight to the office of los muertos to that of the quien sabe to osterman's and to broderson's during a flurry in the chicago wheat pits in the august of that year which had affected even the san francisco market harran and magnus had set up nearly half of one night watching the strip of white tape jerking unsteadily from the reel at such moments they no longer felt their individuality the ranch became merely the part of an enormous whole a unit in the vast agglomeration of wheatland the whole world round feeling the effects of causes thousands of miles distant a drought on the prairies of dakota a rain on the plains of india a frost on the russian steppes a hot wind on the llanos of the argentine harran crossed over to the telephone and rang six bells the call for the division house on four it was the most distant the most isolated point on all the ranch situated at its far southeastern extremity where few people ever went close to the line fence a dot a speck lost in the immensity of the open country by the road it was eleven miles distant from the office and by the trail to hooven's and the lower road all of nine how about that seed demanded harran when he got cutter on the line the other made excuses for an unavoidable delay and was adding that he was on the point of starting out when harran cut in with you had better go the trail it will save a little time and i'm in a hurry put your sacks on the horses backs and a cutter if you see hooven when you go by his place tell him i want him and by the way take a look at the end of the irrigating ditch when you get to it see how they're getting along there and if billy wants anything tell him we're expecting those new scoops down tomorrow or next day and get along with what he has until then how's everything on four all right then give your seed to phelps when you get here if i'm not about i'm going to guadalajara to meet the governor he's coming down today and that makes me think we lost the case you know i had a letter from the governor yesterday yes hard luck s behrman did us up well good-bye and don't lose any time with that seat i want a bluestone today after telephoning cutter harran put on his hat went over to the barns and found phelps phelps had already cleaned out the vat which was to contain the solution of bluestone and was now at work regrading the seed against the wall behind him ranged the rows of sacks harran cut the fastenings of these and examined the contents carefully taking handfuls of wheat from each and allowing it to run through his fingers or nipping the grains between his nails testing their hardness the seed was all of the white varieties of wheat and of a very high grade the berries hard and heavy rigid and swollen with starch it was all like that sir huh observed phelps harran put his chin in the air bread would be as good as cake then he answered going from sack to sack inspecting the contents and consulting the tags affixed to the mouths hello he remarked here's a red wheat where'd this come from well that was that red clawson we sewed onto the piece on four north of the mission creek just to see how it would do there we didn't get a very good catch 
"'We can't do better than to stay by White, Sonora, and Propol,' remarked Harran. "'We've got our best results with that, and European millers like it to mix with the eastern wheats that have more gluten than ours. That is, if we have any wheat at all next year.' A feeling of discouragement for the moment bore down heavily upon him. At intervals this came to him, and for the moment it was overpowering. The idea of what's the use was upon occasional a veritable oppression. Everything seemed to combine to lower the price of wheat. The extension of wheat areas always exceeded increase of population. Competition was growing fiercer every year. The farmers' profits were the object of attack from a score of different quarters. It was a flock of vultures descending upon a common prey, the commission merchant, the elevator combine, the mixing-house ring, the banks, the warehousemen, the laboring man, and above all, the railroad. Steadily the Liverpool buyers cut and cut and cut. Everything, every element of the world's markets, tended to force down the price to the lowest possible figure at which it could be profitably farmed. Now it was down to eighty-seven. It was at that figure the crop had sold that year, and to think that the governor had seen wheat at two dollars and five cents in the year of the Turco-Russian War. He turned back to the house after giving Phelps final directions, gloomy, disheartened, his hands deep in his pockets, wondering what was to be the outcome. So narrow had the margin of profit shrunk that a dry season meant bankruptcy to the smaller farmers throughout all the valley. He knew very well how widespread had been the distress the last two years. With their own tenants on Los Muertos, affairs had reached the stage of desperation. Derrick had practically been obliged to carry Hooven and some of the others. The governor himself had made almost nothing during the last season. A third year like the last, with the price steadily sagging, meant nothing else but ruin. But here he checked himself. Two consecutive dry seasons in California were almost unprecedented. A third would be beyond belief, and the complete rest for nearly all the land was a compensation. They had made no money, that was true, but they had lost none. Thank God the homestead was free of mortgage. One good season would more than make up the difference. He was in a better mood by the time he reached the driveway that led up to the ranch house, and as he raised his eyes toward the house itself, he could not but feel that the sight of his home was cheering. The ranch house was set in a great grove of eucalyptus, oak, and cypress, enormous trees growing from out a lawn that was as green, as fresh, and as well-groomed as any in a garden in the city. This lawn flanked all one side of the house, and it was on this side that the family elected to spend most of its time. The other side, looking out upon the home ranch toward Bonneville and the railroad, was but little used. A deep porch ran the whole length of the house here, and in the lower branches of a live oak near the steps Harran had built a little summer house for his mother. To the left of the ranch house itself, toward the county road, was the bunk house and kitchen for some of the hands. From the steps of the porch the view to the southward expanded to infinity. There was not so much as a twig to obstruct the view. In one leap the eye reached the fine, delicate line where earth and sky met miles away. The flat monotony of the land, clean of fencing, was broken by one spot only, the roof of the division superintendent's house on three, a mere speck 
just darker than the ground. Cutter's house on four was not even in sight. That was below the horizon. As Harran came up, he saw his mother at breakfast. The table had been set on the porch, and Mrs. Derrick, stirring her coffee with one hand, held open with the other the pages of Walter Pater's Marius. At her feet, Princess Nathalie, the white Angora cat, sleek, overfed, self-centered, sat on her haunches, industriously licking at the white fur of her breast, while near at hand, by the railing of the porch, Presley pottered with a new bicycle lamp, filling it with oil, adjusting the wicks. Harran kissed his mother and sat down in a wicker chair on the porch, removing his hat, running his fingers through his yellow hair. Magnus Derrick's wife looked hardly old enough to be the mother of two such big fellows as Harran and Lyman Derrick. She was not far into the fifties, and her brown hair still retained much of its brightness. She could yet be called pretty. Her eyes were large, and easily assumed a look of inquiry and innocence, such as one might expect to see in a young girl. By disposition she was retiring. She easily obliterated herself. She was not made for the harshness of the world, and yet she had known those harshnesses in her younger days. Magnus had married her when she was twenty-one years old, at a time when she was a graduate of some years' standing from the state normal school, and was teaching literature, music, and penmanship in a seminary in the town of Marysville. She overworked herself here continually, loathing the strain of teaching, yet clinging to it with a tenacity born of the knowledge that it was her only means of support. Both her parents were dead. She was dependent upon herself. Her one ambition was to see Italy and the Bay of Naples, the marble fawn, Raphael's Madonnas, and Il Trovatore, were her beau ideals of literature and art. She dreamed of Italy, Rome, Naples, and the world's great art centers. There was no doubt that her affair with Magnus had been a love match, but Annie Payne would have loved any man who would have taken her out of the droning, heart-breaking routine of the class and music room. She had followed his fortunes unquestioningly, first at Sacramento during the turmoil of his political career, later on at Placerville in El Dorado County, after Derrick had interested himself in the Corpus Christi group of mines, and finally at Los Muertos, where, after selling out his fourth interest in Corpus Christi, he had turned rancher and had come in on the new tracts of wheat land just thrown open by the railroad. She had lived here now for nearly ten years never for one moment since the time her glance first lost itself in the unbroken immensity of the ranches had she known a moment's content. Continually there came into her pretty wide-open eyes, the eyes of a young doe, a look of uneasiness, of distrust, and aversion. Los Muertos frightened her. She remembered the days of her young girlhood passed on a farm in eastern Ohio, five hundred acres, neatly partitioned into the water lot, the cow pasture, the corn lot, the barley field, and wheat farm. Cozy, comfortable, homelike, where the farmers loved their land, caressing it, coaxing it, nourishing it as though it were a thing almost conscious, where the seed was sown by hand, and a single two-horse plough was sufficient for the entire farm, 
where the scythe sufficed to cut the harvest and the grain was thrashed with flails. But this new order of things, a ranch bounded only by the horizons, where as far as one could see to the north, to the east, to the south, and to the west, was all one holding, a principality ruled with iron and steam, bullied into a yield of three hundred and fifty thousand bushels, where even when the land was resting, unplowed, unharrowed, and unsown, the wheat came up, troubled her, and even at times filled her with an undefinable terror. To her mind, there was something inordinate about it all, something almost unnatural. The direct brutality of ten thousand acres of wheat, nothing but wheat as far as the eye could see, stunned her a little. The one-time writing teacher of a young lady's seminary, with her pretty deer-like eyes and delicate fingers, shrank from it. She did not want to look at so much wheat. There was something vaguely indecent in the sight, this food of the people, this elemental force, this basic energy, weltering here under the sun in all the unconscious nakedness of a sprawling primordial titan. The monotony of the ranch ate into her heart hour by hour, year by year, and with it all. When was she to see Rome, Italy, and the Bay of Naples? It was a different prospect, truly. Magnus had given her his promise that once the ranch was well established, they too should travel. But continually he had been obliged to put her off, now for one reason, now for another. The machine would not as yet run of itself. He must still feel his hand upon the lever. Next year, perhaps, when wheat should go to ninety, or the rains were good. She did not insist. She obliterated herself, only allowing from time to time her pretty, questioning eyes to meet his. In the meantime, she retired within herself. She surrounded herself with books. Her taste was of the delicacy of point lace. She knew her Austin Dobson by heart. She read poems, essays, the ideas of the seminary at Marysville persisting in her mind. Marius the Epicurean, the essays of Elia, Sesame and Lilies, the Stones of Venice, and the little toy magazines full of the flaccid banalities of the minor poets were continually in her hands. When Presley had appeared on Los Muertos, she had welcomed his arrival with delight. Here, at last, was a congenial spirit. She looked forward to long conversations with the young man on literature, art, and ethics. But Presley had disappointed her. That he, outside of his few chosen deities, should care little for literature shocked her beyond words. His indifference to style, to elegant English, was a positive affront. His savage abuse and open ridicule of the neatly phrased rondeaux and sestinas and chansonnettes of the little magazines was to her mind a wanton and uncalled-for cruelty. She found his Homer with its slaughters and hectictums and barbaric feastings and headstrong passions violent and coarse. She could not see with him any romance, any poetry in the life around her. She looked to Italy for that. His Song of the West, which only once, incoherent and fierce, he had tried to explain to her, 
its swift, tumultuous life, its truth, its nobility and savagery, its heroism and obscenity, had revolted her. "'But, Presley,' she had murmured, "'that is not literature.' "'No,' he had cried between his teeth. "'No, thank God it is not!' A little later, one of the stablemen brought the buggy with the team of bays up to the steps of the porch, and Harran, putting on a different coat and a black hat, took himself off to Guadalajara. The morning was fine. There was no cloud in the sky. But as Harran's buggy drew away from the grove of trees about the ranch house, emerging into the open country on either side of the lower road, he caught himself looking sharply at the sky and the faint line of hills beyond the Quien Sabe ranch. There was a certain indefinite cast to the landscape that to Harran's eye was not to be mistaken. Rain, the first of the season, was not far off. That's good, he muttered, touching the bays with the whip. We can't get our plows to hand any too soon. These plows Magnus Derrick had ordered from an eastern manufacturer some months before, since he was dissatisfied with the results obtained from the ones he had used hitherto, which were of local make. However, there had been exasperating and unexpected delays in their shipment. Magnus and Harran both had counted upon having the ploughs in their implement barns that very week, but a tracer sent after them had only resulted in locating them, still en route, somewhere between the Needles and Bakersfield. Now there was likelihood of rain within the week. Ploughing could be undertaken immediately afterward so soon as the ground was softened. But there was a fair chance that the ranch would lie idle for want of proper machinery. End of Book One, Chapter Two, Part One